Amen. Well, when we met last Sunday, there were about four or five inches of snow covering the ground like manna. And as you know, in the week that's passed since then, the Lord has seen fit to add to those depths eight or ten inches, maybe more, depending on where you live. And it looks like more is coming tonight. And I was thinking about that this week and thinking that, of course, with the snow comes some added drive time and some added work and some added danger and a lot of times added frustration as well. I'm sure many of you know those things quite well this week. But I hope that the frustration and the difficulty of the snow aren't all that you've seen and experienced as you've looked out the windows the last eight days. In fact, this morning I want to encourage you not to miss out on the beauty of the snow as well. All around you this past week, I hope you've seen the echoes of God's glory, the splendor of His creative handiwork. In fact, Romans 1 verse 20 tells us that even unbelievers and pagans and atheists, whether they admit it or not, can see God's eternal power and divine nature clearly through what has been made, including the snow on the ground outside. The glory, the power, the creativity of God are painted in all the fascinating colors of His creation, including the snow white that's surrounding us even as we speak. And so I hope you've stopped this week to notice that and to praise your Maker for His power and His creativity. However, it should be pointed out that there is a beauty in the snows of February that unbelievers and pagans and atheists cannot see. There has been a message in these two or three successive snowstorms that is only visible to those people who know the Lord's forgiveness, to those people who have experienced the Lord's grace, to those who have been called God's children by virtue of their faith in Jesus. That is to say, when you look around outside this morning, there should be a peculiar gospel beauty and a peculiar gospel lesson speaking to you from the drifts of snow just on the other side of these walls. And if you'll turn with me to the first chapter of Isaiah and the 18th verse, I think you'll see the beauty and the lesson of the snow quite clearly. Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are Red like crimson, they will be like wool. Though your sins are as scarlet, how true that is, they will be as white as snow. Isn't that good? That verse would be beautiful even if we were in the heat waves of August this morning, wouldn't it? Any time is a good time to consider the simple, beautiful, merciful offer of forgiveness, full and free, that we find here in this one verse in Isaiah chapter 1. But it seemed to me this week that today would be an especially good day for us to be helped by and moved by a verse like this one. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. That's a simple and yet profound message. That is the offer of the gospel. That is our whole life's hope there in that one verse and pictured for us all around in the last eight days. Here's what Jesus came to die for, that our sins might be completely 
utterly washed away so that in God's sight we would be as white as snow. And what better time than snowy February for us to consider and to understand exactly what God is offering to us here. And so with the remainder of our time, I just want to dwell almost entirely on this one verse that's familiar to many of you and on this one concept that is familiar to almost all of you. That though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And as we consider it, I have four different objectives, four different hopes for you, or four different really applications that may relate to some of you. Um, At least one or two of them will relate to every single one of you. First, it's my hope this morning that someone in this room will hear these words and will take God up on the offer of forgiveness that's here, perhaps for the very first time this morning. I've prayed this week that one of you, perhaps, who is here today without Christ, without the assurance that your sins are forgiven, would turn to Christ and would discover as you turn to Him that God means what He says in Isaiah 118. That though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Secondly, I hope that those of you who have been forgiven by God, that those of you who are His children by faith in Jesus, but who have found yourself really blowing it again this week, who have found yourself traipsing through the mud again this week, who have found yourself caught red-handed again this week, will be reminded today that in Jesus the promise of Isaiah 1.18 is still on offer to you. Even if you've blown it again, God still means what He says. God's Word hasn't changed. And I pray that some of you might be moved to come to God anew this morning and receive fresh assurance that your sins really are forgiven in Jesus. Thirdly, I prayed for all of us that God might simply use this verse, this one familiar verse, to warm our hearts and convince us that the forgiveness that God offers to us in Jesus really is complete. Namely, that our sins have not been merely washed to a lighter shade of red or to a mostly clean color of off-white to convince us that in God's sight our garments aren't mostly white but with a few splatters of mud still on them at the fringes, but rather that in Jesus, according to this verse, our sins, though they are as scarlet, are washed as white, as pure as the pristine and yet untouched drifts of snow in the yard this morning. Forgiveness really is complete in Jesus. And finally, it's my hope that as God holds out the offer of this good news to us this morning, that we might be moved ourselves to hold out this same offer to our classmates and our neighbors and our co-workers and our families, and that we might learn from Isaiah 118 exactly how to hold out the offer of good news to those people whom we love. So this morning in Isaiah 118, there's forgiveness on offer. There's encouragement on offer. There are lessons in evangelism on offer. And I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to move this morning so that many of you will reach out your hands and receive the blessings that God tenders to you here in this one verse. Now, as I've been saying, this verse embodies the offer of the gospel, the offer of forgiveness full and free 
that is so central to everything that we're about as Christians. And for the next few minutes, I'd like to consider that full and free offer of forgiveness under five headings. Five headings, the first four of them all will come from verse 18. First, the offer of the gospel, the offer of this forgiveness is a tender offer. It's a tender offer. Listen to how God begins this sentence. Come now, he says. Come now, let us reason together. Come now are tender words. Those are words of encouragement to the people. Come now, listen. Now, that's worth noting because the people to whom God originally spoke these words, like you and I, deserved anything but God's tenderness. If you just scan back to verse 15, you'll find that they were guilty of sin and that God described their sin by saying at the end of the verse, your hands are covered with blood. So these were great sinners. And so we might expect to come to verse 18 and find recorded here God grabbing them up by the scruff of the neck and giving them a lecture. We might anticipate, even if he were eventually going to offer them forgiveness, that he would first come at them with a series of stern looks and harsh words. And of course, there is a place for God grabbing people up by the scruff of the neck and lecturing them. And you find that sometimes in this book of Isaiah. But here in this verse, when God comes to offer forgiveness to them, what we find is not him grabbing them by the collar, but him beginning the sentence with these gentle, tender words, come now. What we find here is that when God holds out to us the offer of forgiveness, it's not a threatening thing. You better come to me for forgiveness or else. It's a tender thing. It's the voice of a father who, when he knows his son has done wrong and when he sees the shame on his son's face, says to him, come here, boy. Come sit on your daddy's lap. I love you. It's the voice of a mother who sees the tears in her little girl's eyes and says, oh, sweetheart, your mama loves you. That's the way God is speaking to us. That's the way God deals with penitent sinners. Tenderly, come now, he says. Come sit on your father's lap. Remember that I still love you. You will always be my child. I forgive you. Does it ever occur to you when you sin and when you repent that this is really God's disposition towards you? Tenderness? Do you picture God with His face stern and His arms folded when you come to Him and, and saying to you, I don't know. How many times have you come to me with this very same sin just this week? Or do you picture God as the loving Father who says to you, Come now. To put it another way, is your heavenly Father stern and slow to forgive? Or is He tender and easy to be entreated? Does He say to you, you did it again? Or does He say to you, come now? The God of the Bible says, come now. Now as an aside, I wonder how well you and I mirror our heavenly Father when someone sins against us. Are your arms folded? Is your face stern? Do your lips berate and accuse and shame? Or do they say, come now, I forgive you? Those are convicting and probing questions, I think. At least for me, they are. And, in addition to that, 
if you're ever going to share the good news with your friends and your family, you have to understand these first two words of Isaiah 118, or at least the principle behind them. In other words, the good news as it comes from your lips and from your facial expression has to actually seem like good news. It makes no sense to speak to someone about how they need to repent and be forgiven of God and then to do that with an accusing countenance or with an argumentative tone of voice. And yet that's how it sometimes comes across to our unbelieving friends. First of all, it makes no sense because the impression that we give them is that God's news for them is not really good at all. They look at us and say, well, being forgiven surely hasn't changed your outlook very much. But second of all, it's a bad way to share the good news because when we do it without tenderness, we're sharing the good news in a way that God does not. God speaks tenderly to penitent sinners. Now, I'm not saying that there will never be any conflict when you share Jesus with people. Obviously, there will be because before we can share good news with our co-workers and our kids and our classmates, they have to understand that there's bad news that makes the good news worth listening to. They have to realize and own up to the fact that their sins are indeed as scarlet, that there really is blood on their hands. And those facts can sometimes make for some testy moments as we try to tell people about Jesus. But when we get to the good news part of the story, Isaiah 1.18 teaches us that we should be sure to make it come across as good news, that we should be sure to speak tenderly as our Father speaks tenderly to us. That we don't berate people for not following Jesus, but that we tenderly, lovingly encourage them to follow Jesus. That's how God does it here in Isaiah 118, and we would do well to follow His example. And before we leave this point about being tender in our sharing of the gospel with others, it may be helpful to point out that perhaps the reason some of us have trouble responding to others with tenderness is because we don't really understand God's tenderness toward ourselves. In other words, if you struggle to forgive others or if you struggle to present the good news as actually good news, the problem may well be that you think that that's how God responds to you. You imagine an angry God, a lecturing God, a disappointed God. But you haven't yet taken enough notice of passages like Isaiah 118. You haven't understood enough yet that when you repent of your sins, God's word to you is a tender word. Come now. And perhaps today is the day for some of us to begin to learn to hear God's voice to us in just that way. And if God's tenderness does not completely win you over, perhaps you'll be convinced when you see, secondly, that the gospel offer, the offer of forgiveness, is a reasonable offer. A reasonable offer. If the words, come now, are the language of a father to his beloved children, the phrase, let us reason together, is the language of the courtroom. This is legal terminology. You see it used a few other times in Scripture in that way. Actually, We might think of it in our context more like the language of negotiation in the judge's chambers rather than in the courtroom itself. When we hear this phrase, let us reason together, what's happening is the prosecutor is 
saying to the defendant something like this. You have no case. You were caught red-handed. In fact, in light of the evidence, if this litigation actually goes to trial, the jury won't even have to deliberate for five minutes. You're guilty. Everyone knows that you're guilty. And most importantly, you know that you're guilty. So let's reason together. Let's work out a deal. Let's come to a plea bargain. You'll be far better off if you just fess up now and reason with me now than if you attempt to walk into that courtroom and argue your ignorance. That's the sort of language that God is using here. It's the language of legal negotiation. Let's reason together. Let's come to a solution together. Let's not carry this thing all the way out to where we have to bring all the evidence before the court and do what we have to do there. Let's reason together. And I suspect if you ever found yourself in a courtroom situation or in the judge's chambers in a situation like that, I hope that you would have the common sense to accept that plea bargain if you knew that you were guilty. It only makes sense, right? The prosecutor's offer would be a generous one. I'll significantly reduce your sentence or I'll lessen the charges if you will just plead guilty. And if you know that you're guilty, that's an exceedingly reasonable offer. You'd be crazy not to take it. And that's precisely the kind of reasonable offer that you and I are tendered here in Isaiah 118 with one added twist. Namely, that when God calls us into his chambers, he is not simply offering a reduced sentence in exchange for a confession. No. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and righteous not to reduce our sentence, but to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, the heavenly prosecutor does not simply reduce our sentence, does he? He grants us complete pardon. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And I say to you, that is a reasonable offer, isn't it? God's not trying to stick it to you. He's not trying to maneuver you or to deceive you. When he says, let's reason together, he means what he says. He's making an offer here in Isaiah 118 that no one in their right mind could refuse. That's what he means when he says, let's reason together. You can't refuse this. If you just think about it for a minute, I'm offering you full Forgiveness, if you'll just repent of your sins and trust in my son, I will wipe all of your sins off of your record. You can't refuse that, can you? That's the point of the first half of the verse. No one who realizes how guilty they are could ever accuse God of driving a hard bargain, could they? He doesn't just offer a shortened sentence. He doesn't offer the mere possibility of parole. He doesn't offer to convict you on lesser charges. He doesn't offer a rehabilitation program whereby one can earn his way out of prison with good behavior. He offers complete pardon to those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. That's reasonable. We're absolute fools if we do not take him up on this offer. Now, having said that, there's a question for you. Have you taken him up on the offer? Many of you have. Some of you haven't. Have you taken him up on the offer? Or is it for some of us that we still want to 
prove our innocence or prove that we can do better. That's what's actually unreasonable, isn't it? You don't have to prove you're better, God says. You don't have to prove you're innocent. I'll forgive you. It's unreasonable for us to try to work our way back to God any other way. In a human court of law, a criminal who knows he's guilty may every now and again be able to pull the wool over the jury's eyes. Or a criminal who knows that he's guilty may get off because there's not sufficient evidence to convict him, even though he and everyone else knows that he did it. And almost every criminal who carries his case all the way to the point of trial is hoping for one of those kinds of things to happen. He hopes not only to avoid punishment, but actually to be able to walk out of the courthouse with his head held high and his pride intact, never having to admit that he did anything wrong. And as dishonest and despicable as that is, many people succeed in doing it. But let's be reasonable. Can anyone deceive the judge of all the earth? Can anyone hope that God will not have enough evidence to convict him of his crimes against the Lord? Can anyone hope that her sins will go unnoticed by the Almighty? Surely not, for the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. And so if you think that you can escape God's judgment with your pride intact, you're crazy. If you think that you can, on a technicality, escape God's judgment, that's absurd. And yet Isaiah 1.18 says there is a way to escape God's judgment, but not with your head held high and not with your pride intact. God calls this morning and says, come into my negotiating room. Let me make you an offer you cannot refuse. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll reduce your sentence. No. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll grant you the possibility of parole if you do really well from here on out. No. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll place you in a work release program. No. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It's reasonable more than reasonable and we need to be reasonable then ourselves and that means that some of us need to take God up on his offer this very minute and some of us need to consider how ridiculous it is to have an offer of complete and total forgiveness proffered to us and to leave it on the table because we'd rather try to get to heaven some other way we'd rather try to prove that we really are worthy Let us reason together, says the Lord. This is an offer you cannot refuse. And if you're here this morning and you have taken God up on this offer, then you should be busy trying to reason together with your friends, showing them that they are crazy if they do not accept God's proposal. Do that tenderly, remember. But you might say to them something like this when they argue that they're pretty good people and that they think that that's going to suffice, you can say to them, well, okay, if you want to try to earn your way to heaven with all sorts of never-ending rituals and religious exhaustion, knock yourself out. But I can tell you what a sigh of relief it is for me every time I remember that God promises salvation as a free gift that need not be earned. You see what I mean? You can argue with someone that it's not possible to earn salvation, 
And sometimes you need to prove that to someone that they can't do it. But it may in some cases be just as effective to show someone that it's insane to even try if heaven can be obtained by way of a free gift. And perhaps for your friend who is religious and yet unconverted, it may just be the sheer madness of refusing such a reasonable offer that keeps her awake at night and eventually brings her to her senses and to Jesus. Your reasoning with her or with him might just keep that person lying in bed thinking to themselves, do I really want to try to earn heaven with my do-betters and my try-harders? Do I really want to bank on my own ability to do enough and to be enough to finally overcome my sins? Am I serious enough and committed enough to the traditions and the ceremonies which my priest or my pastor always told me would help me get to heaven to ignore all these Bible verses that seem to promise forgiveness in heaven as a free gift? If I pass up this offer, your friend may eventually say to themselves that I must be certifiably crazy. And suddenly the person awakes from his or her spiritual slumber and the light of Christ shines upon them because someone like you tenderly showed them that they are daft if they try to earn that which is offered as a free gift. Just like the reasonableness of the prosecution's plea bargain gives a guilty defendant something to lie awake and think about, so does the reasonable offer of the gospel. So think about it yourself this morning if you're an unbeliever. And if and when you have taken God's plea, reason with your friends. Now thirdly, notice that the offer of the gospel is an undeserved offer. An undeserved offer. Part of what makes God's offer so reasonable and part of what makes us so foolish if we fail to take him up on it is the fact that the plea that God offers us is far beyond anything that we deserve. God promises to wash our sins as white as snow and to wash them white like wool. And he promises to do that for people who are completely undeserving, for people whose sins are as scarlet, for people whose sins are red like crimson. Why scarlet and why crimson? Why not though your sins are black like soot, I'll wash them as white as snow? Why not though your sins are brown like mud, I'll wash them white as snow? Why does he use the word crimson and the word scarlet? Because we might well and accurately say that our sins are like soot and our sins are like mud that we've dragged our feet through. But yet God uses the color red to describe our sins. And we're given a hint in verse 15 as to why he does so. Remember, God told the original hearers of these words that their hands were covered with blood. That didn't literally mean that they were all murderers. Rather, when God said your hands are covered in blood, what he was saying is that all sin is just as sinful as murder. And all sin brings upon our heads the sentence of execution that in physical terms is given to murderers. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is that we forfeit our life blood. The Bible teaches that we deserve to die for our sins, doesn't it? Whether the sin is murder or murder or slander, whether it's prostitution 
or being disobedient to your parents, whether it's fornication or gossip, whether it's drunkenness or murmuring, whether it's stealing or lying or failing to thank God for your food, sin is sin is sin. And the wages of sin is death. Therefore, every last one of us has blood on our hands. Why would we dwell on that this morning? Not to be morbid, not to be negative, not to be browbeating at all. But because the reality is that some of us need to recognize, perhaps, or recognize again this morning how serious and how wicked our sins really are. We need to remember, some of us, that there are no little sins. That there are no sins that are not worthy of death. There are no sins that do not put blood on our hands. And therefore, we need each and every one of us to swallow hard when we remember that. And when we sin and when we're tempted to sin. There are no little sins. There are no sins that aren't worthy of death. And to remember that, far from being morose or self-defeating, is actually a great help to our souls if we understand the rest of the truths in Isaiah 1.18. In other words, it's not a bad thing to dwell from time to time on just how undeserving of God's forgiveness and favor you really are. Because when we realize just how sinful we really are, and when we tenderly help our friends realize just how sinful they really are, the mercy of God is all the more amazing. The snow looks really white, but all the whiter if it's next to a pint of blood. When we recognize that our sins really are a scarlet, we appreciate the cleanliness, the brightness, the purity of the snow all the more. So don't assume once you have received God's forgiveness that you should then push all thoughts of your guiltiness as far away from your mind as possible. That's not what Isaiah 118 is urging. Isaiah 118 is urging that we remember that we're forgiven, but it's also urging that we remember that we're guilty. And so long as you are looking at your sin in light of God's mercy to you, as long as you see the blood on your hands in contrast with the white of the snow, it's actually quite a good thing to realize just how bad you really are, to see just how red the stains on your hands really are. God's offer of forgiveness and grace is an undeserved offer, and that's what makes us actually love Him all the more. And that's what makes the offer all the more miraculous. Now, it's the very fact that our hands are drenched in blood guiltiness that makes the gospel offer. Fourthly, an almost unbelievable offer. What God says in Isaiah 1.18 is almost beyond belief. Can it really be that though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow? Can God really make us that clean? And is that really what he's promising? Yes. But when we read that, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Complete, absolute, total, unstained, white as snow forgiveness. That's the main point of this passage. That's the main point I want to make in this message. That's the main reason why I selected this verse for our thinking today. And yet, it's hard to believe. God has given us, over the last eight days, a wonderful glimpse, a wonderful window into the truth of the gospel. 
Have you ever stopped just to notice the exceeding whiteness of the white of the snow? There's almost nothing in the world that's so purely white as snow. That's the point in Isaiah 118. In fact, almost everything else that we call white, if it's placed next to the pristine, dazzling white of the snow, actually appears to be various shades of off-white. When you leave today, if you turn right out of the parking lot, look at all the white houses as you go down Ridge Avenue. They're not really white. They're almost white, but not when you put them next to the snow. Or even think about this ceiling. Keith and Nick painted this ceiling with what Home Depot, Home Depot calls ceiling white. But it's not quite white. If you threw a snowball against this ceiling, you would see that the ceiling is just a little less than white. You ask me if I'm sure of that? Well, don't tell the deacons, but I tried it this week. Just to make sure. And the snow really is far whiter than even the things that we see as most white. Far wider than this paper. Far wider than anything almost that we could ever put next to it. And yet, God did not promise to make our sins as white as the ceiling or as white as the houses on Ridge Avenue, did He? He did not promise to make our sins almost white. 99.99% white but absolutely, dazzlingly, totally snow white. In other words, God does not promise here to wash us mostly clean of our sins. He does not say that our sins will be wiped away in Christ almost completely, but that they would be totally wiped clean. Every last tincture of bloody red or muddy brown or sooty black is bleached completely away for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even the lighter shades of gray, those sins that don't seem to be so obvious to us, those sins that we don't even notice, some of them that we will carry with us all the way to heaven and never realize how sinful we were until we get there, those light shades of gray that when laid against the snow-white example that Jesus set for us would actually appear quite dingy, even those sins are completely forgiven and cleansed away by the blood of Jesus. When God looks at the believer in Christ, He sees the believer wrapped in snow-white garments that only Jesus actually deserves to wear. So believer, when God looks at you in Christ, He sees you absolutely, completely totally, unstainedly forgiven of every spot and every hue of sin. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Hard to believe, isn't it? Can God really do that? Is it possible for God to give, forgive all of our sins and to keep forgiving them week after week and year after year when we continue to drag ourselves and His name through the mud, will God really forgive us completely even after all that we've done? Yes. And the reason that's possible is because Jesus died in our place. Though your sins are as scarlet, though your hands are covered in blood, they shall be as white as snow. How is that possible? Because though Christ's character 
is as white as snow. God covered him in scarlet. God covered him in blood. Though Christ's hands and garments were white like wool, though Christ have, so that though his hands and his life and his garments and his character were as white as snow, they became as crimson. And therefore, though your sins are as crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Now, I know most of you believe these things in your head. You know that the Bible promises 100% forgiveness to those who trust in Jesus. And yet in your heart, some of you don't always feel as forgiven as Isaiah 118 says you are, do you? That's why I say that the gospel offers almost unbelievable. Of course it's true. Of course we can believe it. Of course God expects us to believe it. But when we see how dirty we really are, when we see that we did it again, it's sometimes hard to believe that God would really make us completely without blemish, that God would really put up with us, that God would really forgive all of our sins. And some of you struggle with that, not with the mental part of believing that you're forgiven, but with actually allowing yourself the felt experience of forgiveness. And I know that's true of you because I know that it's often true of me. I know about forgiveness up here but I don't often allow myself to feel forgiven and it's more important to be forgiven than to feel forgiven so don't think that that means you're not forgiven if you don't always feel it but it's been my great hope and my prayer this week through this message and through the snow that God has blessed us with, that God would help you not just to know the doctrine of forgiveness, but to really feel it and believe it to be true for you. I've prayed for you that this verse, coupled with the snow on the ground, would not just inform your understanding, but this morning move your heart. So when you leave today, Just take a glance across the churchyard. Just gaze for a few seconds at the exceeding whiteness of the snow. And in it, see a gleaming portrait of the forgiveness that God offers you in the gospel. And it's already yours if you're trusting in Jesus. God has not promised to scrub you most of the way clean. He has not left you to remove remove the last few spots yourself. He has not handed you garments that are almost white. No, no. He has promised that in Jesus your sins will be washed as white as snow. In full, complete, absolute forgiveness here and now. And someday your sins will be washed as white as snow in a sinless, holy existence forever. In heaven. And if you've never yet received that offer of forgiveness, offer of forgiveness, allow me now, just in the last couple of minutes, to make a final plea to you. This time from verses 19 and 20. God's offer of forgiveness to us is tender, it is reasonable, it is utterly undeserved, and therefore it is almost unbelievable. And finally, God's offer of forgiveness. Full and free is a final offer. It's a final offer. If you consent and obey, verse 19, you will eat of the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. 
Let me put that into a more New Testament way of thinking. If you will do what I tell you to do, God says, if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone, all will be well. But if you refuse and rebel, you will die in your sins. And here's the point. After holding out to us the offer of utter and absolute forgiveness, after giving his own son to die and make that forgiveness possible, God leaves us now with only two options. Only two options. Either we repent and trust in Christ or we perish. There's no middle route. There's no plan C. All roads do not lead to heaven. We're not given the choice here between a Jesus road that leads to heaven and then also a good works road that might also get you there. There's not a road that's lined with religious ritual and merit and good intention that leads to heaven. There's not a Muslim road or a Buddhist road or a universalist road that leads to heaven. Either we consent and obey to what God tells us in his word, namely that we repent and trust in Jesus alone, or we die. The offer that God has been holding out to us this morning and to most of us week after week after week after year after year is His final offer. And today, if you've never yet decided, is the day to decide. Will you consent and obey? Or will you refuse and rebel? If you consent and obey, or if you have already consented and obeyed, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken.